song, our, our hope, our claim, our future, Lord, we see in Christ, it's, it's in Christ that all our hopes are met. And Lord, I ask that you specifically this morning would help us to draw closer to Christ in our affections, in our mind, Lord, that his word would become more precious, more valuable to us. David wrote, like honey, may we desire, may we value his word like that, that we can know him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John 1 is an interesting dialogue between John the Baptist and some Jewish leaders that had been sent to find out who this guy was. You remember John the Baptist, though his father was a priest, he was not part of the temple aristocracy. He was sort of a guy from outside, came in from the desert. He's preaching and he's baptizing people and Jewish leadership doesn't know who he is or what he's about. Under what authority are you doing this? Who are you? Tell us about that. So they send their representatives to John. This is John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And those folks ask John, they say, Who are you? Who are you? What do we make of you? He confessed, he didn't deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John, to all their query, says, nope, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. Now, before they ask specifically, he simply volunteers when they say, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ. So... Israel is looking for the Messiah, and your study sheet has references from this, but from 2 Samuel, Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, there's a host there. Israel was waiting for the Messiah, and, and that meant the anointed king that would come and would deliver them from their enemies and really institute this blessed kingdom on earth. So we're waiting for the Messiah. Everyone knows that, and John says, that's not me. So check that box, I'm not the Messiah. So they start asking the particular questions now. So how about Elijah? The Jews are waiting for Elijah also. This is from Malachi 4. Verse 5, Behold, Malachi says, writes, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you remember in that same passage, it describes Yahweh coming to earth. It says he's the son of righteousness. He rises with healing in his wings. He's going to bring it in. And his prophet is going to come before he shows up. So we're waiting for Elijah. So are you Elijah? And John says, that's not me either. Now, I'm going to digress briefly because this isn't where we're going this morning. But you know if you've read, if you've read Luke, you know that when the angel speaks to Zechariah, his father, he says, your son is the one who will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. And later in the Gospels, Jesus said, if you'll accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. But of course, the Jews rejected John. They didn't accept him, just as they wouldn't accept the one John said is on the way, Jesus. So they were both rejected, but John says, that's not me, I'm the voice. And then they say, last, are you the prophet? 
So we've got all these expectations. We're expecting, we're waiting, we're looking for particular people to come on the scene that God's told us they're coming. And their coming would be significant and important. And the last one they ask him about is, are you the prophet? And we're going to pick up on that theme in Deuteronomy 18 because that is where this language, this thought, and this expectation comes from. Before we start there, we are in the 19th, and this is the last message in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. And we're going to be looking this morning specifically at both expectations and the manner in which Jesus ends up being and being described in and showing up as prophet, priest, and king when he comes. He doesn't fill one singular role, but rather he fills the three key roles and offices that you see in the Old Testament. We'll pick all of those up out of Deuteronomy this morning. If you've got your Bibles, Deuteronomy 18 is where we're starting. This is verses 15 through 19. And again, this is Moses right near the end of his life. Israel's going to go into the land of promise here after his death. He says there, the Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. That is, this prophet will be a Jew. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, now Moses is looking back 40 years when they met God at Sinai, they said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses takes them back 40 years when they met God at Sinai as a group. And you remember in Exodus 20 when you see that, it was a terrifying experience for the Jews. So God comes down on Sinai, there's thunder, lightning, fire, the earth is shaking, the trumpet blast is getting louder and louder, and God is speaking. And they hear some of this, and at some point they say to Moses, we cannot endure this. We can't hold up. We can't stay here in this setting. It's too much for us. And so they say to Moses, Moses, you go to God, and then when God, whatever God says to you, then you come back and you tell us that because we can hear you. You're like us. We can hear you. You're not going to frighten us off. We'll be able to listen intently to what you say. But we can't, this thing with God is too terrifying. It's overwhelming. We can't do it. So Moses says, fine. So that's what happens. You remember Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the law. Moses comes down and gives that law to Israel. Well, Moses now says in Deuteronomy 18, God's going to do that again. God's going to send you another prophet in the future. And just like I have, he is going to speak God's words to you. And you won't be terrified. It'll be like me speaking again. Someone with authority like mine to speak God's word in God's name. He's going to come. And when he does, you're accountable for him. You're accountable to acknowledge him and listen to what he says. So that's the prophet they're waiting to come. So Israel had, as you know, many prophets between Moses and Malachi in the English uh, arrangement of our Bibles, Malachi is the last book, but none of them were the promised 
prophet that Moses said would come and would be like him. So when Jesus comes to the Jewish people, he is that prophet. He is the promised prophet God said would come, would speak God's word in God's name. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you don't need to turn there. Matthew 5 through 7, though, uh, uh, talk through the description here. Sinai, God comes down on a mountain. He gives the law to his covenant people. So the Sermon on the Mount, Yahweh comes down onto a mountain. He gives his law to his covenant people. But they're not afraid because it's not Yahweh in fire speaking to them. It's Yahweh in our own humanity. It's the prophet who would come, and they're not afraid to listen to him. Not thunder and lightning, not trumpets, not earthquakes. It's Jesus in front of them, but it's no less than Sinai. We're meant to see this. God has come back again, and he's talking about the law, the covenant, to his covenant people. But he's doing so this time through the prophet who is Jesus. And think of the authority Jesus claims here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says six times in chapter 5, you have heard it said. And when he says that, he's quoting the law. For instance, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You have heard it said. Now, of course, that's the law Jesus, as Yahweh, gave at Sinai. He's quoting from the law. You have heard it said. And then he says six times, but I say to you, you've heard it said, that's the law, but I say to you, Jesus assumes the authority, he's not adding to the words of Deuteronomy, but he's enlarging their understanding, and he claims to be, of course, speaking God's word to God's people in God's name. It's exactly what Moses said would happen, the prophet would come. Now, Deuteronomy warned about adding to in two different texts, I think that's on your study sheet, about adding to God's word. And while technically Jesus isn't adding to the language of Deuteronomy, he is certainly enlarging its meaning and understanding to the Jews. And so you can imagine for them, that's a big deal too. Who is this? So they've asked John, who is this? And as you know later, they'll ask Jesus, who do you say that you are as well? So Yahweh again as the prophet speaking to his people. Now some believe Jesus fulfilled Moses' words about the promise of the prophet. Some believed. You see this in John 6, 14. After Jesus fed the 5,000 bread and fish, some said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So for that group, they saw Jesus, they heard him, and they said, we get it. He didn't even have to claim to be the prophet. He's it. He's the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, God warned in verse 19, he said, whoever will not listen to my words he, that the, from the one that speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. That is that the one who refuses to listen to my prophet is accountable to me for rejecting my servant, the one I sent the one who speaks my words with my name in my authority and Jesus makes a very similar warning in John 12 verses 48 and 50 there he says this the one who rejects me does not receive my words has a judge the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day for I have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment 
He speaks in the name of the Father with the Father's authority what to say and what to speak. So Jesus affirms the warning from Deuteronomy 18 and says, if you reject me and my words, you're accountable to the Father in whose name I have come, whose words I am speaking. And if you look at Jesus' message as that prophet who had come, some elements of that are things like Matthew 11's God's heart for the downcast. Come to me, all you who are wearing heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'm that kind of a shepherd. He rebukes the hypocrisy, of course, of the Pharisees. Think of Matthew 23, the woes, woe to you. Uh, he foretells the future, of course. Think of passages like Matthew 24, Luke 21, what's, what's to come, what will your return look like. He also said he was the only means of reconciliation with the Father. So, so he is adding, he is speaking God's word on a number of subjects, but he is speaking God's word as the promised prophet. So in mercy, God sent Jesus as God's ultimate prophet. And to embrace and believe his words for the Jews, that was certainly true in their day, but it's true today as well. To embrace Jesus was to embrace life. For those who hear his word and refuse to believe, there is only certain judgment left. When we quote, quote John 14, 6, Jesus said, we didn't say this for him, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unapologetically, it's the same thought here. I've sent my Savior, my prophet, if you reject him, the Father says, you're rejecting me. And of course, that's a theme that's dominant in John's gospel and also in 1 John as well. So Jesus is the prophet Moses said would come, Deuteronomy 18. Regarding priesthood in Deuteronomy, you see the priesthood in action and you see Moses interacting with Israel like a priest. Priesthood you're probably aware, has two primary functions. The priest does two things, and it's sort of directional. On one hand, the priest speaks for God to people. He speaks for God to people. The flip side is he speaks to God for people. Did I get that right? From God to people, from people to God. So in Deuteronomy, you do not see the priesthood primarily related to sacrifices, so the priesthood comes up in Deuteronomy primarily in this sense, the priests were to be judges. They were God's authority. This, remember, this is before the period where God brings judges and later the kings. The priests were God's authority in the nation. And it was to the priests you went to get judgments rendered. You remember that started with Moses in Exodus and he appointed elders that would oversee by group size. Well, that's the thought you see in Deuteronomy. So the priests primarily were speaking from God's word to give judgments to Israel. They were the authority in that day. They, so they were representing in Deuteronomy God to the nation. If you go to a book like Leviticus, that's the opposite direction because Leviticus is all about the offerings and, and what the priest would do and what the animal was and how it would be sacrificed and what you would do. That was the priesthood representing people to God. And there's this huge role in Leviticus and in the priesthood generally where the priest is the mediator or he's the intercessor for the people he represents. That was a key thought with the priesthood. So that's where you see Moses modeled in a great passage. This is out of Deuteronomy 9. We won't 
read it, perhaps you can read it later, verses 13 through 29. Moses, you remember, institutes the Levitical priesthood, and it's his older brother Aaron that's the first high priest. But you remember when Moses is getting the law at the mountain, the people have already broken the the ten words. They've already created a calf idol and they've worshipped it. And Aaron is the one who put it together. And so God says, I'm ready to wipe out Israel and I'm ready to take your brother with them. And so Moses, as a mediator or in the role of a priest, as an intercessor, it's Moses that goes before Aaron and Israel and pleads for God to spare Israel. He's taking on the role of a priest in intercession. So that's one of the key roles you see in Israel all through the Old Covenant period. 400 years later in Israel's history, God spoke through David, and David was both a prophet and a king. David's a prophet and a king, and we see that role in the Old Testament. He's called a prophet in the New Testament. But 400 years later, as David is, under God's inspiration, writing Psalms, Psalm 110, David the prophet king wrote this, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're a priest, the Messiah. You're, You're a priest, but you're not like priests from the Levitical tribe. You're not like the priests that descend from Aaron. Your study sheet has the references for Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7. Melchizedek's a strange figure in the Bible. He comes out of nowhere, Genesis 14. But his name, uh, Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. And then he's the king over the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. And Hebrews 7 is what brings that out. And he's this unique guy that's brought up in Hebrews. He's mentioned over If you do a word search, he's in Genesis, and he's in Psalm 110, and then most of the rest of the few references for him are all in Hebrews, because that's where we're told about Jesus' priesthood being like Melchizedek's. We're not going to go into all those details today, but you can look him up later. So David says a priest is going to come on the scene. It won't be from Aaron. He'll be a different kind of priest He'll be more like Melchizedek. He sort of comes out of nowhere. He lives forever. And we'll look at some of these passages here in just a moment. When you read John 17, commentators, verses, uh, chapters 13 through 17 are the upper room discourse. So that's one section where Jesus is talking to the disciples before he suffers the next day on the cross. In chapter 17, he turns from talking, as it were, from God to the disciples And then he turns to God and he prays, he intercedes for his disciples. And in fact, in the language there, it says not only for them, but through them, for us, for us in the church age, all down through the ages. And in that, what is called the high priestly prayer, he intercedes for his disciples and you and I today for things like that they would be kept, that our faith would be maintained, that that we would not be lost as his sheep that we would have his joy, that we would have fullness of joy, overflowing joy, that we would be set apart through God's word, sanctify them in the truth. He said, your word is truth. I'll just take this brief moment to say, ask, are we reading our Bible? Are we reading our Bible? Because Jesus' prayer is answered when you and I meditate in God's word. 
So if the prayer Jesus prayed to set us apart for God, to God, occurs through his word, are you and I being set apart for God and to God because we are meditating, we are meeting with Christ in his word? Are we reading our Bibles? When we do, that prayer, very literally, is being answered as God interacts with us and answers Jesus' prayer. We're being affected as we meditate in God's word. He also prayed that we'd be united in Christ. Remember that they'll be one like we're one, and when that happens, the world will know that you sent me. We would become his witnesses. And another one, which is future, uh, he said he wanted his disciples to see his glory which I love. Uh, It's that thought that Jesus knows where he's going. He's going to the cross first, but he's going to rise. And then he'll go back to heaven. And he's going to be in glory. You know, you read Revelation 1 and you see Christ physically does not look anything like the suffering servant that he did on the earth. He's so glorious you can't stand in his presence. And he said, I want these guys who have known me like this, I want them to see, as it were, the real me, the future me, the glorious version of who and what I am in the future. And that's his prayer for us too, which is neat, don't you think? It's like, I'm going to make that house and I'm going to come back. And you remember we talked about weddings not long ago. It's like the bride and the groom are all dressed up and they can hardly wait to see each other. Well, that's the thought there. Jesus says, I want you to see me in all my glory. And we'll be glorious in that day, of course, when we do. But that's his high priestly prayer. That's Jesus interceding as our high priest for us in John 17. In Hebrews, and I'm going to rattle off several here. Yeah, Hebrews really explains to Jews who would want to go back to Judaism instead of trusting Christ and accepting the persecution that brought them that there's nothing to go back to, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the law. So in Hebrews 2, verse 17, we read, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, his humanity, his Jewishness also, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's Jesus that is that high priest. In chapter 4, verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is that? Well, that's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, our confession of faith in Christ. Hebrews 5, 9, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the reference to Psalm 110. Jesus is that priest, and Hebrews is full of the language of Melchizedek and priesthood related to Jesus. And it says Jesus couldn't be a priest if it was a Levitical priesthood, because you've got to be a descendant from a Levite to be a servant, or from Aaron to be the priest. And he's from Judah. So he says, what's with that? He says, well, it's because he's not from Aaron. He's like Melchizedek. He is the fulfillment of that promise. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24 says the former priests, so these were high priests going back in history when this was written, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Every high priest died, of course. That was the end of his term as high priest. He couldn't represent them anymore. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, forever. 
because he continues forever. His life never ends. It can't end. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is such an important concept. Jesus is in his role. He's, so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or depending on how we're viewing Christ and what he did on the earth, sometimes we see him as the offering. So when we talk about Jesus on the cross, we think of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not a lamb. It's not a goat. It's not a bull. It's Jesus. Their blood couldn't save us, but Jesus on the cross, he's that perfect offering. His blood covers our sin. Jesus as the offering. Now, you see that absolutely in Hebrews, but this thought is Jesus is not just the offering on the cross. Jesus is the priest making the offering. So he's both the offering and the priest who offered it. And after that, he's the one in God's presence interceding for us. So the perfect priest offers the perfect sacrifice, intercedes for us perfectly to the Father. Guys, what do you think the chance is Jesus is going to lose one of us? In fact, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Of those you gave me, I didn't lose one only the son of perdition who was never mine. When you bring yourself to Christ as priest and offering, he saves, and I love the language here, he saves us to the uttermost. You can't get any more saved. You can't be lost because you're saved to the end of salvation. You're saved to the uttermost because Jesus is not only the perfect offering, he's the perfect priest making that offering, and he's interceding for us today in heaven. There's a lovely book out, and I'll mention it now so I don't forget. It's called Meek and Lowly. It's Dane Ortland. The church has a number of books on order, Lord willing. They'll come, I think, in next week or next month, which is next week, isn't it? One and the same. If you haven't read this book, and it's along this line, this became a runaway bestseller for Crossway, and I know they had no idea what this book was going to do. It sold right, right out of the gate. It sold a quarter million copies for a Christian devotional, which is almost unheard of. And I don't know how many times it's been published, but they are just developing this to the uttermost. And his message is simple. The whole devotional, it's not a long book. I would encourage you to read it or hold off, and you'll get one from the church in next month. Um, he's quoting Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I'm meek, title of the book, meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. See, and I think it's been so successful because Christians who should know better don't. His point is when we sin, we think God's rejecting us. Jesus feels bad about us. And we need to go and practice some penance for a while. And after a suitable time when we've beat ourselves up a little bit, we'll come back and maybe it'll be okay then. Now, friends, that's good Roman Catholic theology, but that is not biblical theology. And the thesis of the book, just like this is, your sins are fully covered in Jesus' priesthood as an offering. 
the priest has perfectly represented you in that offering and the perfect priest is the one interceding for you today. He's got your back. He's on your side. When you sin, Christians need to hear that because we still, that old natural way of thinking says, okay, I'll feel bad enough, long enough, and then God, then I can go back. It says, nope, when we sin, Jesus is drawing near to us. Jesus who loves us, who shed his blood for us, this is one of Ortland's points. When you sin, he knows you're hurting yourself. When I sin, he knows I'm hurting me. When, if your child was hurting themselves, what would you do? You wouldn't beat them. You wouldn't reject them. You'd go take care of them, and that's his point. That's the kind of priest we have in Christ. He draws near to us when we need him most in our sin. The perfect priest. If you read Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus as the one who died more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2.1, little different language. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, one who comes alongside us with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You can rest in that. When I blow it, Lord, thank you that you are the perfect offering, the perfect priest, and the perfect intercessor. And I count on that. It was in mercy God provided a perfect high priest, communicated God's word, offered a perfect sacrifice, and intercedes for us today. Now the last, so Jesus is the prophet that was promised. He preempts the Levitical priesthood because he's brought a new covenant in. So he's the prophet, he's the priest, and what's the third of that triad that we need? And he's the king. So prophet, priest, and king. You remember Israel lived as a theocracy, Initially, originally. So God is not only their God, he is their king. But he told Moses there's going to come a day when Israel is going to reject my kingship. They're going to say, we want to be like other nations. We want you to give us a king so that we're like everybody else. Now that was a downgrade as a concept. That was a downgrade. But God says that's okay. This is Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15. He said, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, but listen, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. You remember in the Gospels, the Jews uh, despise Herod and his sons as kings. Why? Because they're not Jews. God said you may not have a non-Jewish king. Your kings must be Jewish. Herod is from Esau. He's not a Jew. And that's why the Jews never accepted him as a king. So, in the narrative in 1 Samuel, God answers this prayer. 1 Samuel 8 is the narrative where the people say to Samuel, hey, you're getting old, we don't like your sons, give us a king. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, but this is what we're going to do. They want a king, we're going to give them a king. And so God gives them a king, and the king he first gives them look exactly the way they, they thought he should. So Saul is big and strong and handsome. 
And initially, Saul leads Israel against their enemies, and he delivers Jews from their enemies. And initially, Israel thinks, man, we've got our king, this is him, life is grand. But the problem is, of course, on the outside, he has the physique or the look of the kind of king they thought they wanted, but his heart is not God's. I believe he's an unregenerate man, even though you'll see instances where it says the Spirit comes upon him, empowers him, he prophesies. I don't believe it's conversion. I believe it's like the Spirit could come on a donkey and speak, or the Spirit could come on a Gentile prophet and speak. But he appears to be an unregenerate man. His heart is never God's, and everything he does is wrong. In fact, he persecutes the one that God's going to use to replace him. So the second king is, of course, King David. David represents the kind of man God wanted as king for his people. And if you think about this, this is true in the narratives, but you really get David's heart when you read the Psalms. So he's written half of the Psalms, and you really get a sense of what was important to David when you read the book of Psalms. So David loved the Lord. You read that in the Psalms. I love you, O Lord. You know, in fact, he says in Psalm 27, all I want to do is hang out with you. I just want to be where you are. I just want to hang out with you. I just want to consider you, interact with you. That would make my life complete. Hanging out with the Lord. He says he praised God through the Psalms. He found his delight in the Lord. He wanted to know and honor God. I love this too. He prayed to bless God's people in the Psalms. One of the things I find interesting in Psalm 51 is that right near the end, he prays that God will bless his people. And I think it's for this reason. He's the king. And guys, what the king gets, the nation gets. And if God wants to discipline David, and he does later in life, Israel would suffer. The people would suffer. And so you see his heart. His heart is not only for God vertically, but his heart is for God's people horizontally. And he basically says, Lord, don't hold my sin against the nation. Lord, would you bless them? You've forgiven me. Would you bless your people? Now, David was told that it would be one of his descendants who would be the king God always intended for Israel and for the world. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Guys, this is one of the markers you would want in your Bible There are some key passages in Bible upon which salvation history pivots, and this is one of them. Psalm 110 is one of them, a priest like Melchizedek. That's one of them. But 2 Samuel 7 is another. 2 Samuel 7 is when David said to Nathan, I feel bad, I'm living in this lovely palace, and God's still in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. I want to build God a house. Nathan says, do it. That's a great idea. God speaks to Nathan. Nathan goes back to David and says, in part, this. Uh, By the way, you're not going to build me a house. I'll build you a house instead. He says, when your days, this this is the prophet to David for God, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, when you read about the kingship of Solomon and you see the glory of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon and the nation at its apex, that portion of Solomon's life, we're meant to see this glorious reign of Jesus on the earth. 
the fount of wisdom, the source of glory and honor on the earth, the place where people come because they simply want to hear more from this wisdom and this king. That day would come. Solomon, of course, doesn't end well. The end of his life is idolatrous and, and he falls out. As a model of Jesus, David's direct descendant looks like him for part of his life, but certainly not for all. When you read the genealogies... In Matthew's gospel, specifically I'm thinking of here, there's a reason God put the genealogy there, right? Because we know this king that would come, he has to come, he has to be a direct descendant from King David. And so Matthew makes sure the Jews know, and we know today, David is a direct descendant of King David. There's no question about this whatsoever. Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew 16, 13, you remember, some people believe Jesus was the prophet, but not, not many. So he asked his disciples this, uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? You know, the leaders went to John and say, who are you? And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. John had already been executed. They thought maybe he'd risen and was back. Others say, Elijah. Oh, they think you're the prophet that's going to bring the Messiah in. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, so that's the popular level response. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So guys, you've been with me, you've heard me, you've seen me. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, famously replied, you are the Christ. Now remember, Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek, those are the same words. That means the anointed one. And you remember in the Old Testament when a high priest was instituted or the messianic king or a king, they would pour oil on their head as an indication they were chosen by God, empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill that role. And Peter says, you're it. He uses the Greek term Christ, but you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You'll see a similar response in John 6 right at the end of the chapter. Some people say Jesus, you know, didn't claim to be messianic, didn't claim to be God. There's a number of claims that are made, which are all false. Jesus accepted messianic praise when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You remember what the crowds cried out? Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna means God saved now, and the son of David is a title for the Messiah because we know from 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah will be David's son. And when the leaders, the Jewish leaders say, hey, you better tell them to stop, Jesus says, if they weren't saying this, the stones, the very rocks would cry out because that is who I am. I'm the Messiah. Jesus told the Roman governor Pilate that he was a king, simply that his kingdom was not of this world or at least not of this world at this time. And Jesus was ultimately rejected, of course, as king, but he promised to return. You know, again, these are on your study sheet. When Jesus returns to earth, you know, the difference in his appearance could not be more dramatic or stark. You remember, think of Palm Sunday. He rides in on the little donkey into Jerusalem. He's a humble figure. There's nothing about his appearance that would draw you or I to him, it says. And they recognize him there in that very, very humble estate. They still say, well, that's the Messiah. But when he returns, he doesn't look anything like that. You know, he's the glorious person of Revelation chapter 1. 
Revelation 19 tells us he's on a war horse. He's not standing before governors being judged. He's ruling the world with a rod of iron. Again, I'd commend those passages to you to look up later. And with that, and in part because of that, Christians look for what Titus calls the blessed hope. So Christians are meant to live with an expectation that Jesus is going to call and I'm going to see him, that the king is going to call his bride to himself and we're going to see him, the blessed hope. You know, the cry and, and we're alive on the earth, 1 Thessalonians 4, and, and we're, we rise to meet Christ and we're with Christ ever after. And whatever your eschatology is, however close rapture is to second coming, whatever it is, it's the holy ones that belong to Jesus that return with him to the earth. Jesus in all this glory and power, Revelation 19, comes to the earth, which has already been described in passages like Zechariah 14 or Psalm 2. There's a number of passages on your study sheet you can look at. So he was here in humility that first time. Some recognize him as king. We do today. He's king in heaven, but he's going to return and bring his kingdom to the earth. So we'd say in mercy, Jesus was sent as a king. Now I want to bring this around just a little bit. When we talk about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, we are talking in Jewish language and Jewish expectation. And I think those in the church who disconnect Jesus as Jew and Jesus as Jewish prophet, priest, and king do a grave disservice to Jesus and to his promises to the Jews. So today the church, we've got in early on promises God made to the Jews. Jews today, observant Jews today, they're still living under the law of Moses because they didn't accept Jesus as prophet, priest, or king. They have no prophet greater than Moses. Moses is still the source. They have no priest greater than Aaron. They have no active priesthood. They have no king, you know, elected representatives. But a day is coming when Israel will find God's mercy and salvation and grace in Jesus, their prophet, priest, and king. Now, people usually don't uh, teach out of Deuteronomy to begin with, which I get. But they also don't teach out of the end of Deuteronomy. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. To this day, the Lord, Yahweh, has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. God speaks through Moses to Israel in that generation and he says, God hasn't given that to you yet. It's not that none of the Jews were saved, but the Jewish nation did not have faith in Yahweh. And of course, you see that throughout the Old Testament. Why is that? He says, God hasn't given you that heart yet. But you go to the next chapter, Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6. God says, you guys are going to go into captivity. And if we were only thinking of the Jews in captivity, we might relegate this to the Babylonian captivity. But the promise at the end of this passage goes beyond anything that has occurred to this point. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it after captivity. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh, the Lord your God, will, will what? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Friends, this is far before Jeremiah, but this is the new covenant language promised in Deuteronomy. This is the same imagery out of Ezekiel that God's going to remove your stony heart and he's going to give you a heart of flesh that can respond to him appropriately. That was made to the Jews. This has not happened. This is national salvation and deliverance. And that's exactly what you see in Romans 11, 25 through 27. I've read this at the beginning. I think this was the first message. I'll read it again. This is particularly important, and forgive a brief theological spin. When Paul tells Christians like you and me at the end of Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God, he knows the Romans are asking themselves the question, what about the Jews? Because the Jews were God's covenant people, and it looks like the Jews have been rejected, and we're getting saved, and they're not. What about the promises God made to the Jews? And you see where this goes. The fear is this. God made promises to the Jews, and it doesn't look like he's keeping them. You've told us we're saved forever, but why would we believe that if he doesn't keep his word to the Jews? Why do we have any comfort in our eternal security if promises made to that group of people aren't kept to that group of people? And that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 are so important theologically for the Christian. But when he winds down, Paul makes this point. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Go back to Deuteronomy 29. Your heart is still uncircumcised. It's still hard. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, there's a limit, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel is in contrast to Gentiles and the church age. All Israel will be saved as it's written. This is quotes from Isaiah and Psalm 14. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The nation will experience the forgiveness of sin and restoration. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we are primarily a Gentile church enjoying the blessings and the promises God gave to the Jews. It doesn't mean the Jews aren't going to see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. The promises, those promises will be fulfilled to Israel. We simply got in on them early. Jews and Gentiles alike needed God to speak truth to us clearly Jesus is the prophet promised to Israel. He completed the revelation of God to all mankind. If you think of language like John 1, he is the word of God. You know, Hebrews 1, God spoke in the past, various times and ways. He spoke through the prophets, but in this day he has spoken in the Son. God has spoke to us. Jesus is, this is not discounting the New Testament epistles, but Jesus is the fullness, the finality of God's revelation to us. He fulfills that role as prophet. But in mercy, God chose to bring us into that blessing early as well. Are we listening to God's prophet and God's word? And guys, again, I just want to emphasize this. Not that you've never heard it before. So many of us, we read devotionals, we listen to conservative radio or watch conservative TV. We do everything except read our Bible. 
Everything except. And guys, I can't tell you, you know, um, I've been a Christian 41 years, 42 years in October. I've been re reading my Bible for 42 years. And you know what? It's better now than it's ever been before. Amen. And every time I open it up, I'm just floored at what God shows me. And sometimes I understand Peter says in 2 Peter 3, some of those things Paul wrote, they're hard to understand. I don't get it. So don't worry about those parts. Read the parts we do understand. Take that into our life. It'll change you. You'll be changed forever. And that's the bedrock. God's revelation to us in Christ and in his word is the primary means by which he instructs us, draws near to us, sanctifies us, sets us apart, illuminates our mind and our thinking. When you know what God has said, nobody can change your mind. When you know God has said this, this is what he's laid out, you can argue all day long. People have different points of theology with me. I'm like, you can give me your best arguments, but I think I've read them and I'm solid on this. I'm good to go on this, God's word. It's an unshakable foundation. It's one we all need to be living off of. And God's gone to extraordinary lengths to give us his word in person and in writing. We needed a faithful, merciful priest. Jesus is the high priest. He's sympathetic with us in our sin. He doesn't reject us when we sin. He's sympathetic with us in our sin. He's offered a sacrifice adequate to cover our sin. And he's interceding for us to the Father right now, even now. We needed a king strong enough to defeat every enemy, but merciful enough to love us. That's good, isn't it? A powerful king is good. A powerful king can destroy your enemies, but maybe he doesn't like you very well. But this is the king that destroys our enemies and sets his love on us forever. One role, a single title, was not enough for Jesus to display his perfection or the totality of his ability to meet our deepest needs. It took three. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. With that, if you would, rise. And I want to read a passage again that I believe we read our first message in this series out of Romans 11 because really it's about this. Guys, we're no better than Jews in the Old Testament. And they're no worse than us. And this passage reminds us that God is now able to say, you're all guilty, why? So that he can show mercy to all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike and everything in between. Read with me, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Amen.